Thank you all very much for coming and showing up on time and us getting started. Um, I, I appreciate this. Uh, today is, as you, you probably knew was, was a day where you didn't have to do, you know, homework or preparation. And, uh, I'll just walk you through and show you the ropes and take questions and we will, we'll take the two full hours. But it, uh, but, uh, again, I thank you very much. I want to start with a prayer and, uh, then we'll get going. So let us pray. Dear God, we do give you thanks for beginnings, for the freshness of books and of papers and of, and of resolve and of hope, and ask that as we uh, study the New Testament, read and learn it together, that it will mark a growth and an understanding for all of us, for some in, in our faith, for some in our understanding, uh, and for some in just our, our hope and view of life. Uh, we make all of this these prayers in your name. Amen. Uh, so I, uh, my name's Larry Hayward, and I am the pastor at Westminster. And and as many of you all know, I've, this is this is about the eighth uh, round of Old and New Testament that I've done uh, at Westminster since um, a prior career of teaching 17 weeks on the Old Testament, 17 weeks on the New Testament in one year, in a in a course that was developed by the Methodists called Disciple. Uh, but I've, I've been doing, you know, this kind of teaching for really since about 1993, and I absolutely love it. I'm always astounded at, at the turnout and uh, just really appreciate your signing up. About We have about 50-plus uh, signed up for this class. About t- half of you all took Old Testament in this room last year uh, at these same round tables. I did change your location and in some instances change the makeup of your table so you've got some carryover with people you were in last year and some not. Uh, some of you have taken previous classes from me and so there's a, there's a real mixture. I told in a sermon today, I said we've got, um, I'm doing an, an Old Testament class on Wednesday morning as well, um, but I think there are about 15 of you all in this class that are that are not Westminster members, and some of you are friends, uh, some of you are from other faiths, some of you, as I said, just probably wandered in off the street. I don't know, you know, how you found out, but uh, but it's really a it's really a good mixture, and I I want to know, I want you to, I mean, you'll see as we go through it, um, even with the New Testament, which is is uh, is certainly certainly specific to Christianity, but. Uh, my intention and hope is is to is to open the literature of the Bible to you for you to decide what to do with it and and that's a way of saying that uh, that this is it is great literature and there's great wisdom in it for human beings for people who are uh, seeking to grow in their Christian faith or wrestling with what they believe or for um, for people who who simply want to know more, so whatever has brought you here, um, I want to affirm and and uh, recognize that that you are welcome. And uh, my aim here is not to convert you to Christianity; it's to convert you to a love of of this literature that that I have been blessed to have, and it also happens to be that it matches my faith. But you know, uh, but I really do appreciate all of you being here. Um, we're going to do today sort of a mixture of, of logistics and overview of the class and 
even a little bit on on how to read the Bible. Uh, and I and I want to start by by saying that um, one of the richest experiences here that I have always found at Westminster is when when you all when members of the class you know, volunteer to do about a five-minute devotional or reading at the beginning of each class. I did a short prayer today, uh, but I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna again encourage you to do that. Um, I understand if you are shy about that or new to this, you are certainly. I mean, we've only got about 26 Sundays and there's 50 people in here, you know. So, but but I would like uh, I would like to pass this around. And, and particularly the next few weeks, if somebody that's experienced at this would be, you know, make sure we get the next two weeks. But but if you're willing to do this, it can be, it, you, as you see it done, you'll you'll realize what it is. Sometimes people do sort of meditations on the reading from that week. Sometimes they do their own personal reflections on on faith or or anything. And as long as it's it's three to five minutes, uh, we welcome it all. So I'm just going to start here and let you all. Sign up as, as you're willing to do that, um, and uh, there's a there's also a white envelope going around. If you haven't paid and want to pay tonight, I think the white envelope's over there. Uh, it's twenty five dollars. You make the check out to Westminster and just put class or New Testament or whatever you want to in the lower left hand corner. Uh, you can also pay online if you don't. If you don't have it tonight, don't worry about it. All I ask is that if you put $25 cash in there, put your name on the envelope so we'll know who the cash goes for. And basically, the $25 just pays a little bit for supplies and a lot for our end-of-the-year party, which is at my house, after the last class of the year. And uh, we have the best caterer in the church cater it, so you know that's, that's really what you're... That's really what your $25 is going for, almost exclusively. Um, so let me, what I would like to do first, you've got two sheets in front of you, and, and every time you come, uh, you'll, you'll be at these tables, and it'll be set up like it is today. I'll have the name tags out, and I sort of try to move you around at the tables, but you, sometimes people come and switch and get the choice seats. Uh, if your back is to me, please feel free to turn your chair around. Uh, just get where you can see, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about the purpose of the tables and, and what happens in your discussion there uh, later. But um, each time you'll have basically one handout. You have two today because the first one is what I call the syllabus, which is in the upper right-hand corner. It says last updated 425.19, and this um, I'm going to read. Uh, I just want to point out a, a little bit from the first page and then uh, kind of an overview of what we're going to be doing. Uh, really, the, the purpose of the class is, is, to, is for a guided reading of the New Testament. And, and the, the guidance comes um, mainly from in here, and it's mainly after the fact. I mean, you're, the idea is that you will read the biblical chapters assigned ahead of time. And then I'll do about an hour to hour and a 15 minutes of an overview or a presentation. And you'll, you'll see that uh, that's not a straight formal lecture. And I'm, I'm re- very open to questions and discussion during that period. But what I'm essentially trying to do 
is is give you a big picture of that book or of you know that section of of the New Testament book that you're reading. And then we typically take one about ten minute break uh, in the class. Uh, and for everybody that's new, the coffee and tea is right out that door to our left. It's in a corner over there. We have a coffee machine. There's a little spigot with hot water in the center between the decaf and the calf, and you press a button at the top, and all the makings and everything are out there. So you're welcome to get that ahead of time or um, and certainly at the break. But we'll do a break, and, and then ideally what I like to do is then focus, take one uh, – passage of a few verses from what we've read and try to focus on that at a deeper way although you know I don't get sometimes I don't get to that as as much as I would like and then anywhere from the last 30 to 20 minutes is you doing discussion questions at your tables and and the discussion questions are generally the ones that are printed on the handout. Sometimes I'll try to tweak them or explain them. They're not always the clearest questions in the world, and sometimes I haven't changed them like I should. Uh, but really the purpose the purpose of, of this, and it, and it is very important, is, um, is for you all to try to answer the questions. And sometimes I'll just say, you know, do question one and question three. I mean, sometimes there's more questions than you've got time for. But it really is for you to learn from one another uh, and 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 grow that way. I I don't have table chairpersons or monitors, uh, and, uh, you know. But but I really hope that that you will practice what's called active listening, which is which is really listen to what somebody is saying and. Um, and not try to to discount it, you know, or you know, we're crazy, you know, and and that happens sometimes. I mean, you, I don't want that to happen, but I really want you to listen and and acknowledge that that the way we grow, and and particularly in this church, is there will be a variety of opinions and a variety of perspectives on faith, on the text, on life, and and in that discussion, and and that is a I believe that's a rich thing. And so um, I also, I mean, some of the questions will push you to be personal in the sense of they will ask you things, you know, that, that you have been through or experienced that might relate to this. And I, and, and we are a, you know, we're a church and a community of faith, and it is appropriate for you to share as, as much as you would like to share, but it's also really important if somebody shares something that is is deep or tragic in their life or personal, whether that was something that happened 50 years ago or something that happened five days ago, to really respect that. And and it's in that sense, it needs to be confidential. I mean, it's not your you don't want to be going home and telling anybody but your dog. What was talked about? Okay, I mean, you know, you need to respect that as a group. Over the course of these these classes, there are table groups that really form good friendships, and they end out going to county fairs together, or they end out going to wineries together, or having dinner, and that's great. If that happens, you know, run with it, go for it. And you know, there's some tables that that just sort of never gel. I think. I'm not at your table, so I don't know. But if you're in one that you feel like isn't gelling, 
Uh, I'm not averse to trying to make some adjustments or, or paying a little visit to try to make it gel a little bit. But but I hope the, the biggest art artful choice I try to go through each time is to put people together who who I think both will have something in common but also have have something that's different or diverse. Um, and and if you took it last year, you will probably recognize that you are more than likely with at least somebody that you were with last year, which is an intention, but also also not. Yeah, you know, so. Well, you were with Kurt last year. So, uh, so, so uh, but I do want that to be a rich time. And, and the last, you know, 30 minutes or so today is going to be uh, – is going to be with the tables. I'm going to go see if that air is on. It's already getting a little hot in here. Just a second. I think that. Let me just see. Okay, let's see if that helps. Um, I, uh, I also think I have you. I think I've got everybody placed. Uh, for for physical reasons or health reasons, there are some people that need to be near the door, which is fine. If you also have hearing issues and need to be at one of these tables, let me know, and I'll do that. There are, there are hearing devices. Those little wires back there in the back are devices that, that work pretty well, and I know both Kurt and Ted are good at helping people figure that out, right? From Southern Colette, Colleen uses them. So, so if you need anything like that, let me know. Um, the a couple of other things on on this. I'm I'm following this you know this front sheet, but uh, as I said, this is a guided reading, and I'll spend a little bit of time later today. Uh, I mean later in this lesson, uh, talking about the Old Testament because it's very important to have the context out of which the New Testament arises. And that, that's part of what I want to do today. But, but uh, the good news for those of you who took last year is you know, you're only reading about a third as much as you did last year. The Old Testament is much longer than the New Testament. And it's typically more familiar, but not necessarily. Uh, so, uh, but what we're going to be doing is following you know, the life and teachings of Jesus as they emerge from Judaism. Um, and, and then that's kind of up until Christmas. And the second, the second half of the year is really the spread of Christianity into the Greco-Roman world, which essentially happens beginning in the book of Acts with, with the transition from Peter to Paul. And then the whole, basically, spring is the letters of Paul, which is a different kind of literature, but it is literature that's from the early church. So whereas in the Old Testament class, we covered from creation to essentially the birth of Christ, which is between two and 3,000 years of history. Certainly, certainly covered about 2,000 years of history in the literature. You know, we're talking about, 50 to 60 years, 70 years in the New Testament from, from the birth of Christ till, till the, uh, really to the end of Paul's letters. So it, it is, it is different. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit about just the commitment. Um, this this course, you know, this teaching has morphed from what was originally a program called Disciple, where you were you were actually asked to covenant to attend 30 of 34 sessions, which I guess is about 85 percent. Um, what I found at Westminster is that the the attendance for these classes runs in the 75 to 80 percent range, which is basically, you know, three out of four times. I think we've got 26 sections. Uh, there's actually one couple that are going to join mid-October when they come back from their summer home in New York. I mean, I'm not terribly strict about that. What I what I would say is that it it's really important to sort of decide whether you're in or out. And, and I know some of you may be sampling this, and after a couple of weeks you may just think this is not for me. But but uh, if if there is a chunk of time you're going to be gone, you know that's that's fine. Uh, what what I would ask is that you really you know commit to coming you know when you're in town. And if you know you're only going to be able to be at a fourth of the classes. It's really not worth your time or your table's time. I mean, that just sort of disrupts the idea of, of having the table groups. I'm not going to say don't come, but, but it's really, I think you will find it stimulating. You'll find it a, a good reason to be here. And, and certainly, uh, your participation and relationships around the table help. And there's continuity in this material. I mean, it's not like you can just plop in and read something out of first Thessalonians and suddenly have all the context. It really helps. It's a long narrative story. I do ask you to let me know uh, when you're not going to be here. There's actually, uh, this is an attendance chart I keep, and if you want to come up and mark it, you know, at any time, that's fine. I've got this through the, through the 24th of November. But also emailing. I mean, if you, and if you want to go back, you know, in your office this week and send me I know I'm going to miss these four dates. It just helps me in setting up the table, and you know, it's a little bit of accountability for you, you all as well, uh, to, to know when you're not going to be here. Um, I do ask you to participate in the discussions. People are have different personalities in discussion groups, and uh, it, you know, you need to participate at the level that you're most comfortable with. But don't don't be shy about pushing yourself a little bit too to maybe say more or or to speak for the first time in a group. Um, so um, let's look at, if you'll just turn over to page two of this, I just want to run through the, the, the weekly schedule so you can see, uh, see what we're doing to give you a little bit of an overview. Um, the, as I said earlier, the, the New Testament is basically divided be, between... I think I've got it as four major sections. But the most familiar part for Christians is the Gospels. And the Gospel, the word Gospel simply means good news. And each Gospel is entitled the good news according to Matthew, the good news according to Mark, the good news according to Luke, the good news according to John. And with a title like that, that in and of itself is a signal that that there is a message. This is not 
uh, intended to be factual, objective journalism or a CIA security report. <laughs> okay, this is the Gospels were literature that that were each written um, 30 to 60 years after the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And they were they were written after 30 years of telling in the church and in small groups and from generation to generation the story of Jesus Christ. And, and then after the telling, they began to be assembled and written into what we have as the four Gospels. Um, they are four differing portraits of Jesus. And there are places where it can drive you nuts if you need factual consistency because there are places that that either they don't agree or they're describing the same event from two different viewpoints or two different perspectives <laughs> that there's not much in common other than the event itself. But but the good news of that is what what you have are four different uh, inspired and creative writers who are distilling uh, the story of Jesus of Nazareth and in a way that relates to their faith and to their their community that they're writing for and and what they want to emphasize about him and that in and of itself is a is a literary and theological sort of perspective in this class so we are going to look at Matthew's story of Jesus for 2 weeks and then we're going to close the book on Matthew and say okay we're going to go through the same story with Mark and what Mark is saying about Jesus. One big difference is in Mark's story of Jesus, there is no birth. There's no John the Baptist. There are no angels singing. Jesus just starts as an adult. That in itself says something. So, And then we're going to go to Luke's story and spend two weeks on Luke. And then we're going to go to John's story of Jesus and spend two weeks on John. John is a lot longer, much wordier. The picture and personality of Jesus seems entirely different, much more spiritual, much more long discourses. Uh, much of the material in John is unique to John, as is as it is in Luke. Uh, but it's, you know, I'm going to point out, so what I'm, what I'm really going to ask you to do is to say we have this basic Jesus of Nazareth who, you know, outside historians, Josephus, have said, yes, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who was put to death. Okay, that's, that's the facts we know. <laughs> but you've got Matthew telling about that, Mark telling about that, Luke telling about that, and John telling about that. And I, so I'm... What I'm going to say is, okay, we've got Matthew, we've got these facts, we've got Matthew, and we've got us as a reader, you know, interacting with that. So it's like a triangular thing. And in the Christian faith, we 
trust or believe that the spirit is sort of personality number four who's in there, who's putting it all together for us and giving us some inspiration. But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to to really draw those distinctions so you understand that you've got four pictures of, of these, of, of the story of Jesus from Nazareth. So that is um, the first section, and that takes us uh, through November 10th. And, and on November 10th, I'll do a, a, a lesson that you don't have to prepare for, but it's really an overview of Jesus as the Messiah. It's sort of a summary and an overview of what we know about Jesus. Then the last two classes before our break for Christmas, um, November 17th and 24, are the Acts of the Apostles. That is the book of Acts. Um, And the book of Acts is the story of the earliest church from right after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus as, as Christianity spread into the Greco-Roman world. The, a basic thing that you need to know, which a lot of Southern Protestants like me didn't really realize until we got, you know, turned 30, is that uh, Jesus was not American. He didn't speak English. He didn't speak with a Southern accent. And he was, lo and behold, Jewish. Of all things, he was Jewish. I mean, he was born into Judaism and conceived himself as being sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, what happened is, sort of like Martin Luther, I mean, once, you know, once he came, his movement and his life, death, and resurrection represented this explosion of religious fervor and energy. And it was actually Paul the Apostle Paul, who was also Jewish, who had this Damascus Road experience where this risen Christ spoke to him and said, you are going to take this message of uh, Jesus to the Greco-Roman world, to quote the Gentiles. And so what we have is a Jewish Messiah and thought form and language and mindset in the Gospels that is then transported into the Platonic Greco-Roman thought form and world. And the reality is that we as Westerners come much more out of that Greco-Roman heritage than the Semitic heritage that is Jesus. Uh, and it's the story of Acts where that transfer begins to happen. Acts is written in the third person. It is written by Luke, by the author of Luke. So Luke has this first volume is the story of Jesus, and his second volume is the story of the early church. Um, but but Acts is, is kind of long. I think it's 28, 27, 28 chapters. And... Uh, and again, it's just it's third-person narrative and stories about the growth of the church and Paul's missionary journeys, if you've heard that phrase. Then the whole next section of the Bible are called the epistles or the letters. And, and basically what those are is that 
Paul, as, as an apostle, as a missionary, would go to a city, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Galatia, the names of the books. He would go to a city in, the, in Asia Minor, usually in the Greco-Roman world, and, and he would often go to the synagogues first, or he would go to an existing community of people that may have started to form as Christians. And by community, that may have been six people. It may have been 12 people. It may have been 30 people. But Paul would essentially stay there and uh, form a, a congregation, which was really a house church. And much of this was in the Roman Empire. Much of it was semi-underground. The empire sort of tolerated the Christians as long as they didn't make much trouble. And the Christians kind of, you know, went in Rome, do as the Romans do to stay out of trouble. But, but it's really a small movement. But Paul would stay with a church in a city maybe three months, maybe three years, depending on how long it took. And then he would go to the next city and do the same thing with, with the next church. In the meanwhile, often the church back here would start squabbling. Or they would have some serious, serious question. Now, wh- what is it? We've gotta, we got to, we can't eat meat offered to idols, you know? We, we have certain sexual mores we have to follow. I mean, there's just questions. And so they would write Paul a letter that would be delivered, no telling how much later, and Paul would write a letter back and, you know, try, often trying to answer their questions. Uh, Paul was not writing these theological treaties that he expected people to be reading in a New Testament class 2,000 years later. He was answering questions to a group of people he knew. He was doing theology on the ground in the moment. Um, What we have as the literature is Paul's letters. We do not have the letters that were written to him. So it's a little bit like Jeopardy. We have the answers but we don't always know exactly the questions that he was asking. That I mean, that he was being asked. And so some of his answers, you know, we're left to sort of try to figure out what he's really saying or, or what the context is. Uh, an, an outdated institution, an outdated example that I, that I have used, and I'll still use it, I'll just make it further back in time. Some of you will remember when everybody lived in a house and it, you walked in the door and it had a stairwell up upstairs, wooden stairwell, and in the side of the stairwell was a little nook where stood the family telephone that was black and had a dial on it. And you picked it up, and if it was a long time ago, somebody would be on that dial, and you would say, connect me to Mabel in the next house. Okay? Uh, if, if you can imagine walking into that house and your mom is on the phone, standing below the stairwell, and says, Oh my gosh, I am so sorry that happened. Let me get over there right now. And hangs the phone up. You don't hear the person on the other end. You don't know who has called in. You don't know what the emergency is. You don't know what the crisis is. But you know that something's going on based on hearing what your mom is saying on the phone. 
essentially, when we are reading Paul's letters, that is what we are doing. We are hearing what Paul is saying, but we don't really know what the crisis is on the other end. We're also, as I've said before, my dear grandmother in her latter years, whenever she came to visit, it made my mom terribly mad because all of the mail was read <laughs> because she got it out the mailbox. And, you know, she read any letter that was written to anybody in the household. You know, we are sort of reading other people's mail when we're reading Paul's letters. OK, this is somewhat private correspondence, kind of kind of private public. But anyway, so that's a long treatise. But when you read the Gospels, you're reading third person narrative accounts written by people who really believe and have a certain message lens through which they view Jesus. And they're conveying that you read Acts. And it's sort of the same thing. It's third person. It's a big sweep account of the early years of the church. Then when you get to the letters, it's what we used to call primary literature in history and English classes. It is the actual on-the-ground letters that Paul wrote back to the churches for the most part. There's another section of letters that I have in here that, that, that think may have been written out of the school of Paul by followers of Paul later. They're more about as the church gets more institutional, about the order in the church and offices and things like that. Um, I'm, I'm not big on whether they're Pauline authorship or not. They're, they're part of the Bible. They're, they are a great part of the Bible. But all of them, I mean, the bulk of this course after Christmas is going to be with letters. Then, at the very end, we take up the dreaded book of Revelation, <laughs> which is apocalyptic. Uh, and it's like Daniel in the Old Testament. It's really a vision given to a person named John, and it's got connections with the Gospel of John about the ultimate culmination of the world and the return of Christ, and it's multiply interpreted all over the map. Most people in churches like ours utterly avoid it. Uh, It's got really graphic stuff in there, but beautiful stuff in there. Uh, I've only got it scheduled for one week, but you'll have to start reading it about yesterday to prepare for it, okay? And that's it, that we go have a party at my house with good food. Okay? So uh, in terms of just your the, the overall schedule, we it's a, it's a little bit of a broken up year, but not terribly. Uh, because this is New Testament and it's shorter, our last class will meet every Sunday until November 24th, which is the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's late this year. So we'll meet here four to six every Sunday, um, and we will finish Acts, which is really a neat break. Then we come back on January 12th. So we have about a six-week break, and we'll meet and we'll pick up with letter, with Paul's letters at that point. As many of you know, there is a trip where you know, our church is sponsoring, and I and several of you are going on a trip to Israel. Uh, in February, so so we will not meet February 16th or 23rd, and then we will come back March 1st and 8th and 15th. We'll we'll go through April 5th consecutively. Uh, Easter is April 12th, so we won't we won't meet Easter Sunday, but then we'll come back for two more Sundays, the 19th and the 26th of April. I don't know why I said April 26, 2016. Just ignore that, but. Uh, <laughs> But it, 
it's good to finish before May because it gets spring-like and people start, you know, getting spring fever and they want to mow their grass and plant their flowers. So, so we're able to do this schedule and, and finish by May. So any, any questions or reactions to any of that so far? Uh, yes, that's, thanks for reminding me of that. I'm going to do some logistics. Um, yeah, let me, just a second, let me answer Colleen's first. Uh, you do need to know that this class is being recorded, so everything you say or sneeze now, it actually doesn't pick up, it doesn't pick up your conversations. But I do shut it off for the table discussions, so you can be, I mean, nothing on your table discussions recorded. But we record it. If I remember to turn it on, if I, you know, don't make a mistake, uh, it is, the uh, audio is available online usually two or three days later. So if you miss, you know, and, and you want to listen, it's not edited. It's not professional, you know, so don't don't get your hopes up. But, you know, it, it can be helpful to some. And then these uh, these handouts will be posted online ahead of the class, usually should be at the first part of the week. I have 10 copies back there for those of you who don't have printers, you know, or don't, um, you know, want, want to take these. The handouts you don't have to use because actually what I want you to do is read the text. And, and I only want you to use the handouts or the notes in the book um, as support, not replacement. But a lot of people find find the handouts help, helpful at a time and, and the text as well. If you don't get your reading done, you can still come to class. Just don't make a hot habit of it. It's really it really is intended for you to read read the book itself. It's called reading and learning the Bible, not just learning the Bible. So I do really want you to read it. Uh, I know that you know I've I've said if you can do it. I mean, the best way to do it, set aside the same time and place every day and try to try to do it at least five days a week. I know that that doesn't work for everybody. I know choir members read it under their robes on Sunday morning. <laughs> and, and our library is full of people skipping church who are there doing their homework. So, but you'll just get more, more out of it if you make it a, a, daily, a daily part of your life and can use it for devotional. You can use it for, for prayer and sort of a discipline. In a rotation, but you got to do what you got to do to get it done. So, Terry, you had a question. It was about the recording. Yeah, it is recorded. So, so, uh, and any anything else so far? I've covered. Yes. So, with the the Bible you have recommended. Yes. Your revised standard version with the apocrypha. Are we reading any of the apocrypha? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, I ask you to order this one because the page numbers match up. And you'll find in here, we'll say go to page 1132. Um, we, we actually don't read the Apocrypha. So, um, but, but I will say this is the New Revised Standard Version was done in, I think, 91. And it's really the, ba it's the text that's in our Pew Bibles. And it replaced the Revised Standard Version that was done in the early 50s, which is actually what I grew up on, and so a lot of times when I get into the language, I'm going to I'm going to get in the language I memorized, which was Revised Standard. 
Um, but it is, it is a, by and large, good, responsible translation. It's not a paraphrase, and translation is important. It's not the King James, which, which some of us know and, and some of you grew up on. Uh, it was done during the period of King James, which is, what, 16th, 17th century. It's a wonderful language, but most of us, our brains don't work that way to be able to read that kind of language in a way that's that that we can study it's it's the most beautiful language but uh, but anyway i do ask you to to order the class and i would do it by the isbin number which is uh, on this sheet because that way you get it get it at amazon some some people were getting it for as low as 22 or 23 dollars this year don't shouldn't be more than 40 it's i think some Dave Allen one time went to it and said, "Oh, that Bible is $125." No, this Bible is not $125. It should be in the $30 to $40 range. Yeah, so I do ask you to to do that. Uh, yes, Joanne. Yes. Well, what I it's it's a good question, and I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and say that. Um, the, these th- there are two Bibles that that I use for my you know in in my own study and just just work. One of them is this one, and one of them is the Harper Collins Study Bible. And if some of you took an early disciple course, that might be the one you have, and it's fine too. In this in these Bibles, there is a chapter introduction that's usually about a page and a half that gives you the context, you know, who the author likely was, when it was written, what the major historical context is of that book. And then at the bottom are what what I call are are really notes or footnotes from each page. And on some pages, that's as much as a third of the, you know, the bottom. Um, It's... People at, at Westminster are, and in, in this part of the, the world, are basically such good readers and students. I don't want you to not read those. But I, I want you to read the text, okay? I don't want, I don't want you to get so excited about, you know, the date of Joel that you do everything but read Joel. You see what I'm talking about? That's, that's my only warning. Um, I think theologically and and uh, just from its scholarship, um, I like this one and I like giving it to classes. But I would classify it as uh, as edgy. There is some of it that I think is just wacky. I, 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 that's too strong. There's some of it that I, you know, I would not agree with. So I don't and and. You know, this is contemporary. I mean, the notes and the introductions. The, the person who wrote the introduction did the notes for that chapter, and their name is at the bottom of the introduction, and they're all listed at the beginning of the book. They are basically New Testament professors at colleges or seminaries around the country, sometimes around the world. Some of them I agree with. Some of them I think are are just a little too far out there for my taste. Uh, so, I, but I do want you to be aware that when you're reading those notes, you're reading a scholar's opinion. But in our belief system, no scholar and no teacher and no preacher is God. I mean, you 
you know, you decide ultimately in your own conscience what this text is saying to you. So uh, the Harper Study Bible is is a little more conventional, therefore a little more dull, but also and sometimes a little more reliable. So, but most of you don't don't have that one. So, uh, but I do I do ask you to 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 get this one just because it that way we are literally all on the same page, which makes the class go faster. Uh, anything else along those lines? Yes, Jan. Yeah, I think 70, 75 percent. Yeah. Yeah. But this looks like much. We'll be reading. You'll be reading more, but yeah, but it's. I, I maybe I've assigned all the books. I'm not sure. I mean, I I think I've assigned all the books. We're not necessarily going to spend class time on all the books, but you know, there are. I mean, you could at the break read Philemon or Jude. I mean, there are books, some of the New Testament books are so short, you can literally read them on the restroom break, okay? (laughs) It's not, you know, you can't read Matthew then, but, you know. So, wash your hands before and after. But, but, you know, I think you probably will be reading the the whole New Testament if if you do the assigned reading. Okay, so any other things on that? I'm kind of, uh, let me do, let me do a little bit on logistics and then when we come back we'll, we'll pick up on the type of literature. Um, and we'll, so this will take about five minutes and then we'll do a break. So basically when you come in you're always going to go to the table that you're at now and the, your name tags will always be put out. I am, uh, what I am going to ask you to do, which we all kind of did by habit last year, but it's really helpful at the end of the class, if you'll take your name tags, don't wear them home, because <laughs> then you won't have a place when you come back. You'll have to sit on the piano bench. But put your name tag back in there, put the pins back in there, seal it up, and I'm going to ask you to go put it in that basket. And then just any of the extra... Take your own papers. If there are papers there that somebody has not shown up and used, just leave them on the table because I'll I'll make a stack out there of prior lessons. But it'll help me if you'll clear the tables. I am working with another church in our presbytery with their pastor nominating committee for about the next year and a half. So I have to be in Vienna at 7.30. So I'm leaving. I mean, I, I really don't have to leave till about 6.45. So I can still meet and talk after class. But it'll help me if I don't have to do a lot of pickup. I'll I'll take care of the coffee because I've got that routine down. So, but it'll help if you just sort of clear the tables. Um, the other thing, coffee, tea, and decaf. As you'll see out there, we've got a you know the orange decaf spigot, and we've got the regular spigot uh, of coffee. And if you can't figure it out, somebody will show you how to get the tea. And all the serving stuff is is back up against the wall. Uh, it's always a guess. We try to not overfix coffee, but I'll try to gauge, and it never works, how many decaffers and how many caffers we have. I have actually gotten off of coffee, which will surprise many of you all. That's the big news in the church this year. So, um, I'm st- what I have seemed calmer. It's good. So only around you. So, uh, but anyway, there's. Uh, you're, we don't have, we don't really offer any other drinks, so, but you're welcome to bring 
whatever you need to from the outside. Um, we also don't really do food in here, although there's an excess place of plate of cookies over there, which you're welcome to. Um, you know, if you want to bring something for your table that's very quick and edible, that's fine. But but don't get into it. This is not a gourmet contest. Okay, this is hardcore learning the Bible. Then you can go out and do whatever you want to do on Sunday night afterwards, okay, and eat whatever you want to eat. So uh, if you do, the only thing I, this is not as much of an issue as it used to be, but if if you have to bring something, this is like arena stage. If you are going to have coffee, please, I mean, a wrapped piece of candy, please unwrap it before the play starts because it can be really irritating, especially if it's melted and you're just taking it apart and it's reverberating throughout the room and somebody's just about to share the most intimate point of their life or faith and a candy wrapper gets them. So try to just unwrap things ahead of time or bring them with silencers. Uh, Online copies, upcoming handouts, prior lessons on the counter in the back. Um, again, if you need to sit by the door, if you need to go to the restroom, you don't have to raise your hand. Just get up and go. Hearing impaired, I've talked about mobility. Snow policy is easy here. Uh, you know, We'll announce it in church. Uh, we're not going to have class if it's a – we always have worship, but we're not going to have class in a blizzard. And I don't want you to do anything dangerous. Uh, chances are if we do have a snow day, then what I'll ask you to do is come, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half early the following week and we'll do two lessons in one, which you will appreciate when May 1st comes and you want to be in your garden. Okay. So um, the other – oh, um, I'm, I'm going to talk to Jim. We have, we have changed our policy now to where – uh, during the week and and on Sundays, we're actually leaving our building open during, you know, in, until nine at night when there are events going on. Um, so this, if it's not happening today, the door should be open throughout this class, which means if you are late, you can come. You don't. You're not going to get locked out. Nor if you go out to smoke a cigarette or vape or do whatever people do outside, you won't get locked out, okay? Uh, I'm going to try to get it to where it should be open. I mean, right now it's open at 345, but I'm, I'm going to get that set earlier so that those of you who come early can come early uh, with no problems. So the bathrooms are right down that hall on the right if you haven't found them. So any logistics questions, I really do ask you to let me know if you're when you're going to miss, even if it's an email that afternoon, just uh, let me know. So any other questions about anything I've said so far before you get your break? Okay, thank you. Take a break. I want to make sure I'm covering everything I've got covered, yes. Um, so... Um, I want to I want to say a little bit about class introductions and how we're going to do that when we after I get through the next two sections um, I'm going to have you spend the rest of the time in your in your tables and I and I really and I've got questions that I want you to discuss at your table that really are a way of introducing yourselves to your table mates uh, in but it it can be frustrating because you 
you know, you come in here and you're with your table, but you see these other people and you want to know a little about them too. And y'all will, there will be cross discussion. So I think what I'm going to do is something I tried last year, and that is we'll take about the first few minutes of each of the first eight classes and have everybody at a particular table introduce themselves to the whole group. And, and I think the question I have here, you know, these are, I've always got the ability to change these. So I think what I'm going to ask you to do is, uh, and we'll just, we'll just go tables one through, you all are one, I think. I think we'll just, I think we'll just start over here. This, this is a good, no, y'all are four. Okay. Uh, we'll start over here. Okay. We'll start over here next week. And Robin and Carol are veterans, so y'all, y'all can set the tone. But basically, I'm going to want everybody at the table to just stand up and, and to say your name so people, you know, can, can get it. To say just a little bit about yourself in terms of why you're here, if you want to share your, your faith background or, or, you know, what it is that, that has brought you to this class. And then tell either the most memorable or embarrassing thing that has happened to you in church or in school. And you can pick whether it's memorable or embarrassing. Okay? Humiliating or both. Yeah. Yeah. So, because you'll remember each other better by the last question, by the story. Oh, you're the one that... Okay. So, that's... I don't want it to be long. I mean, try to really try to keep it to, you know, about a minute and a half each or something. Yeah. But just your name, a little bit about yourself, and something that's memorable or embarrassing. So we'll remember you, okay? But we'll start that next week, and I'll just go in that order. So you all will be last. So you all can be really good, okay? And if the week you're assigned... Nobody on the table's there. I'll know why. Okay. So, so let's. Uh, I want to give you a little more content. If if you will turn on the lesson, the one that says lesson nine eight nineteen, turn on to the second page, and I want to start at part four, which is beginning halfway through the Old Testament context for the New Testament. So I want to cover that, and then I want to jump up to part three, the types of literature. And then we will go to our group. Um, this is going to be a review for you all who took the Old Testament last year. And uh, it's, it's just the basic context of if, if, you, take, if you take the whole Bible, uh, which is what, what this is, and just to make the point... Um, in terms of bulk, you know, th- this is the New Testament, and this is the Old Testament, and the Apocrypha, so it's a little bit longer. But th- this is how much the difference is in, in just the sheer content. So the Old Testament is um, starts with the book of Genesis, which means beginning. And the first words of the Old Testament are, in the beginning. When God created the heavens and earth, or God created the heavens and the earth. And the first 11 chapters of the Old Testament are, are literature that, that we would rightly describe as primeval literature of origins. It, it's sometimes called myth, not to be confused with fiction, 
but mythological in that it explains things. It is prehistory. You can't date from the literature, you know, the creation story, the two creation stories, uh, the fall, which happens in the third chapter. So what you've basically got, just the storyline of the of the first 11 chapters, which are very important, is that God creates the earth beautiful and good and according to God's intentions, and it is in a garden. Uh, the human creatures are created and set in the garden and told to be fruitful and multiply, and everything is utterly uh, beautiful and according to God's will. In the third chapter is when you have what Christians call the fall. And that is uh, the choice that the woman makes to eat from the one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, that God has, has put a fence around and says, you shall not eat from that tree. And if you look at, I think it's it's three nine, when Eve eats eats of the fruit, the text says it was because she saw that it was good for food, desirable to make one wise, and was beautiful. So it was for aesthetic. It was like a reach, not a fall. It was not. And I don't want to make mischief here. It was the goodness of food, the goodness of beauty, and the goodness of truth. Desire to make one wise. Yet that was still an exceeding of the bounds. And what you have, and then, you know, so that Eve gets not, so we undo the universal blame for Eve for the fall. Good old Adam immediately takes a bite himself. I mean, many seconds later, you know. So, um, but what you have after that in Genesis, or after that in, in this section, the fall is like this huge divide between the way God intended creation to be and the way life became. And we live after the fall. We live in the way life is now, not the way it was intended to be. And, and the next few chapters of Genesis are a downward spiral of negative consequences from the fall, beginning with which uh, is the discovery of shame, the awareness of shame, uh, the sense that they can hide from God, which doesn't work, uh, the creation of clothing, the mutual blame between Adam and Eve, the, the disunity between between male and female, the disunity between humanity and nature with the serpent. Uh, and then, lo and behold, somehow they have children, and uh, Cain and Abel grow up, and the first uh, murder, the first act of violence is an act of domestic violence, a fratricide, family violence, in an argument at the altar over whose offering to God is superior. And there's no explanation as to why God chose one over the other. But it is, it's like, you know, family violence, sibling rivalry, murder, 
death, and religious warfare all erupt at that point again after the fall. After the fall, work becomes difficult. There's pain in childbirth. Uh, Women, for some reason, seem to be attracted to men, and men, for some reason, think they can rule it over women. And for some reason, women continue to go back to men who think they can rule it over them. It's after the fall. Not part of creation, but after the fall. Um, After a while, God sort of looks down at everything and says, I have got to start over. And that is where you get the story of Noah and the flood. So you get three chapters, six, seven, eight, and nine, almost four chapters, of what is destructive and difficult literature for us because it's like God, you know, destroys everything except two of each kind. And and yet the only way, you know, that, that I can... Theologically teach that to children, which we don't tend to teach to children. We like arky, arky, but not <laughs> daddy, daddy, you know, that goes along <laughs> with that story, you know, is, uh, is that this is all part of some cosmic creation, prehistorical, and, it, and it's God starting over. Uh, but no sooner does God start over than, than you have the story of, of Noah who never argues with God, unlike later patriarchs, uh, comes out of the ark, uh, immediately gets drunk. Uh, There is some kind of sexual violation that occurs with his son seeing him naked. Uh, It's a little unclear as to what that is, Um, but but one of the brothers is cursed, and it is actually from that text that, that... you know the arguments for slavery and for uh, the the inferiority of people of color had been used for centuries in the Bible. I mean, from that text right at the outset, the curse of Shem, I think. Uh, Ham, yes. Thank you, thank you. Um, then there's a there's a genealogy that's that's important because the ages sort of get lowered and then we get the Tower of Babel and this section of the Bible ends with once again the human creatures deciding that they want to build a tower to heaven and God looks down and says no 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 and confuses their language and scatters them across the face of the earth so so one of the ways that that's considered to be explanatory is that it it explains why. Not only do we have this human violence that started in difference, but, but people cannot understand the same language. And, and the only way that people are scattered over the face of the earth, which was originally part of creation, was that God scattered them in response to their, again, trying to exceed their limits. All of that is in the primeval literature that is that is not written historically. It's written poetically and narratively, but it's but it's very profound about explaining the world in which we live and, the, and God's act to redeem that world. Um, beginning with Genesis 12, 1, you have, we have the call of Abraham and Sarah. And what I, the way I try to describe that in, in sort of an oversimplified way is 
coming out of Babel, you've got all these languages and all these nations that are spread out all across the world and, and neither understand each other nor necessarily uh, are at peace with each other. It's, a pretty, it's still a pretty chaotic thing after the fall. And, and it is as if God is a teacher on the first day of class who goes into a classroom or a substitute teacher that goes into a classroom and it's just chaotic and they're throwing erasers at each other and spitballs and they're testing the teacher and there's anything to do to not do the learning. And it's like God looks out or the teacher looks out at that classroom and picks two or three kids that the teacher wants to work with to try to bring order so that there's order eventually to the whole rest of the classroom. You do that, don't you? Okay, sometimes, right? Does it ever work? Yeah. Sometimes, okay. Well, Got to figure it out. I know, I know. So, <laughs> but uh, that is essentially the call of Abraham and Sarah and, and the creation of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. There is no explanation given that God chose them as to why God chose them. The danger with being chosen by God, which we Presbyterians who believe in election follow and we Christians follow, is once you are chosen, you sort of believe you deserve it. You sort of believe you did something. And and that's not the biblical narrative. It is a choice on the part of God with a promise that that contains three elements. And and these elements play themselves all the way out in the Old Testament. The promise to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12, 1 to 4, is land, descendants, and blessing. Land, descendants, and blessing. Land, descendants, and blessing. And the blessing part is actually blessed to be a blessing. So God basically says, I'm going to make you a nation. Therefore, you'll have land. You'll have descendants. And I'm going to bless you, but... So that you, so that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the whole idea of election and working with the people of Israel like the substitute teacher is actually for the benefit of them being a catalyst for this blessing that will occur, be given to all of the nations of the world. And the, and there are many ways in which the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God working with the people of Israel to try to enact that blessing in history. And so um, with the patriarchs in Genesis, um, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, um, you have the working out of descendants. And so you've got all these stories of barren women and the, and the need for children to be born. And, and there's warring factions. It's Isaac versus Ishmael. And, you know, the 12, bro- the Joseph, the Joseph has all these brothers and there's, there's warring factions. It's essentially the formation of a line of a, of a nation. Uh, with always the promise of land. But they are a nomadic people who continue to go from place to place. And at the end of Genesis, in the Joseph story, uh, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and he becomes a top 
uh, minister of agriculture in a time of famine, but he is still a slave. And so by the end of Genesis, which is now many years later, there's still no sign of the land. And so the first part of Exodus opens, and and Joseph is dead, and the slave conditions become worse. And God then calls Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery, which happens in uh, Exodus 13 and 14. And immediately when they're left out of slavery, they don't enter some promised land. They enter the wilderness. And they wander in the wilderness. The wilderness is a time of testing, but it's also a time of uh, rebellion and faithfulness. There's both. Uh, in the, in, in, but there's still no land. If you're going to be a people or a nation, you, you know, in addition to land, you've got to have an identity, a reason for being. And essentially, that comes through the giving of the law which is the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws that therefore grow out of it. And so that that creates both a national and a religious identity for the people of Israel. And that happens in the second half of Exodus, Leviticus. In Numbers, they're still uh, wandering in the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy, there is essentially Moses' farewell address, in a way reinterpreting the law for their new situation of about to enter the promised land. But we are, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we are five books into the Bible, and they still haven't gotten the land. Uh, They actually, uh, then in the book of Joshua, which is about, uh, about the year 1200, so we're about 600 years into this, the people of Israel finally enter the land with Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Great battle. But then you turn over and you read Judges and there's the account of the land and it's like a migration. It's not this battle that's all conquering. There's, all, there's sort of two perspectives on it. But anyway, by the time you get to Joshua and Judges, they finally got the land, they've got descendants, and they've got a national identity. And so then you need leadership. So what you've had all the way along is essentially charismatic patriarchs, Abraham, you know, Joseph, Moses. Uh, When you get to judges, what you have are basically tribal leaders of small tribes that will win a military victory against the Canaanites, the Philistines, and the land. And because they win a military victory, they become the leader of the people for a while. But this is a period in which the people are unfaithful, and the, and the leaders are unfaithful. And there is a pattern, a formula in the book of Judges that said, you know, they were unfaithful, so God consigned them to defeat. They cried to God. God heard their cries rose up a new judges, a new judge, they won a victory, and it starts all over, became unfaithful. The book of Judges is probably the most violent book in the Old Testament. It's very difficult for people to read. It's when people give up on reading. If they haven't given up at Leviticus, they give up on Judges because it's I don't want a God like that. You know, I don't want that kind of warfare. Um, but what what you have to understand about the book of Judges is that the that twice in the book, including its last verse, 
it it basically says uh, in those days, in the days of the book, in the days of the judges, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The theological judgment by the narrator on this violent material is this is a low point in Israel's history. This is not the way God wants us to be. We're all just doing what we want to do in our own our own eyes. So that sort of softens it. Plus, the very next book is the book of Ruth, which is lovely, faithful, beautiful, and it opens with the, with the line, in the days of the judges. You have this heroic, non-Jewish woman named Ruth, the Moabitess, the Canaanite, who embodies everything that the law wants the Jewish people to embody. So it's a little, it's not comic relief, it's sort of beautiful relief from a very difficult part. So basically, after Judges and Ruth, then you've got First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and the people of Israel at that point are suffering a lot of battles. They're not doing well. They look around and say, "All these other nations have a king. We want a king to be like the other nations. So the king will fight our battle for us." Well, Samuel, who's the last judge, goes to God and says, "They've rejected me. They want a king." God says, "I don't think a king's a good idea." Samuel says, "I don't think a king's a good idea," but God says. Let them have their king. So Samuel, who's actually the little boy in the temple, you know, that's called, and here I am, Lord, is actually a pretty cranky figure the rest of the time. But Samuel reluctantly anoints Saul as the king in the inauguration speech, the welcoming speech that Samuel gives is basically, all right, now you've got your king. All he's going to do is raise your taxes, enrich himself, and hire the biggest and most powerful number of chariots in the world so that he can make war. That's that's the welcoming speech for the king. Saul is doomed, does not make it. David is already chosen as his successor. David is the wonderful shepherd boy who does all these great things and wins all these battles. And then, it's not adultery with Bathsheba. It is much worse than that. It's not seduction. It's a kills her husband. It's a it's a rape. Okay. She she was the wife of his leading military commander, and he sets that commander up to be killed. So in one you have this wonderful story of the rise of David, and then at the top the story opens with. In the spring of the year, when troops go out to war, David stayed back and took a nap and went out to the roof and saw this beautiful woman bathing, and then it goes from there. And the second half of the story is the decline of David. What happens after this violation of his role as husband, as father, as leader of the people, as commander-in-chief? All of those roles were violated. Um, Alongside, and, and then there are succession issues. Um, David's family is marked by violence. His kingdom is marked by violence. Uh, his son, the son, the second son, the second child of him, of he and Bathsheba, is at the end of his life put on the throne 
through the intervention of Bathsheba and Nathan, who's the prophet that confronted him on his deathbed. They make sure that Solomon gets named the successor. And then Solomon is, is a good king in many ways. He builds the temple. He, he does very well. He's the wise king. Uh, but he, too, intermarries outside the faith and leads to all kinds of syncretistic religion and, and loses his kingdom because of that. Then the kingdom divides into civil war. And so in the in the book of First and Second Kings, you've got all these kings of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they all sound alike, and they're all cousins, and they've all got names that are the same, and none of them's any good, except for Hezekiah and Josiah kind of get good reviews, but not really. Okay, so it's just kind of a now that's that's the leadership of this nation. Yeah, they're in the land, but their political leadership is not particularly strong. But about this time, there's two other things that happen, and then we get to Jesus. Uh, one thing is the pr- prophetic movement starts, uh, and it starts with really Nathan, who's a court prophet, confronting David about what he's done to Bathsheba and Uriah. But, but the first classic prophets are Elijah and Elisha, and they, the role of the prophet is to try to call the people of Israel back to faithfulness to God. In, uh, so it's like a religious leadership that's alongside a civil leadership. And I'm using sort of Western American terms, but it's, it's, a, it's a good way for us to conceptualize it. Um, the other thing that happens, um, you know, the, the whole people go into exile, then they're called back out of exile by Cyrus, who's not a Jewish king. They're able to restore Jerusalem, which has been burnt down. In the, you know, fifth and sixth century, alongside this period, there are there are two things that develop. One is sort of the wisdom movement, which is the wisdom literature of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, a lot of the books at the end of the Bible, Proverbs, the sages who sort of stop history and really meditate. <clears throat> on the meaning of life. And, and that's the whole last section we did in the Old Testament is that. The other thing that happens along with the, the prophetic movement is there begins to be, within the prophets, there begins to be the concept of a yearning for a Messiah. That there will be some divine figure sent by God that will be a visitation and will save us. That is found in Daniel 7, and it's found at several of the prophets. When you're singing Handel's Messiah from Isaiah, you're talking about the yearnings, the expectation of the Messiah. Essentially what happens is the Old Testament ends if you, depending on what order you read the canon in, with the the Christian canon or the the Protestant canon ends with the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, the very last words are a yearning for the Messiah. The Jewish canon ends with Second Chronicles. And the very last words are a promise that the king will be let out of prison and returned to the land. So you've got these two 
very important concepts in Judaism of land and Messiah that that are that are the end. I mean, the Old Testament sort of comes to the to an end there. And and basically, you know, as I understand it, and I always want the Jewish folks in the class to be able to, to speak up. Uh, the the Jewish faith has in its as an important part a, a belief, an ultimate yearning for a Messiah. When when Jesus is born as a Jew, and this is why it's so important to know this, he wasn't born as a Christian, he was born as a Jew. Um, his followers, some of whom were Jewish, some of whom were not, believed that he was the Messiah, that he that he was the Jewish Messiah. The bulk of Judaism did not believe that he was the Messiah. They believe he's a prophet. They believe he's a great teacher. They believe he's a rabbi, but but not that he was the Messiah. And so when you get these New Testament stories of well, are you the Messiah or not, Peter asked. It's because he doesn't really fit what their expectation was for a Messiahship. But the the easy way of saying this, and it's a little bit shallow, but it's a little bit not, is the only difference between Jews and Christians is over whether or not Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And, and Christians are those who come out of the people who believe that he was. And Jews continue to say, no, he, he isn't. He doesn't fit what we expect to be the Messiah. And so that's why, you know, that's that's the divide. But that divide is much more accentuated sometimes in popular Christian understanding than it has to be. And, and what I, and then this is my conclusion, <laughs> what I want you to understand is what we are doing is in this class is picking up this story with the birth of Jesus as it is told by people who believe he was the Messiah. But in their telling and in the events of his life, you will see that he does not fit Jewish expectations of Messiah. And when we say he, you know, redefined Messiahship and rode in town on a donkey and was crucified, and that doesn't fit what the king of the Jews is supposed to look like, you'll see that tension throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, and that his actually his his death was at uh, at the hands of, of Jewish leaders who felt his claim to Messiahship or the claim to Messiahship made of him was blasphemous. His claim to be God was to blaspheme God because if anybody claimed to be God, that was blasphemous. Uh, and the Romans who were, uh, for whom it became politically feasible for him to be put to death. So he was put to death by a combination of the two. Uh both of whom ultimately felt it was in their interests. But but Jesus himself, the village, the movement, were a, were a minor event in history by the standards of history. This was not World War II. This was in a small part of the world. There's only one reference to Jesus outside the Bible, and that's the Jewish historian Josephus. But obviously what it grew into terms of Christianity has been hugely dominant in world history the last 2,000 years. So that's where we're picking the story up, okay? And we're picking it up 
with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are going to tell the story of Jesus from the eyes of faith that they have. And they are going to emphasize, each emphasize different things that are not terribly different, but they're enrichingly different. And they're going to be telling that story for their community of readers who who do differ. All right, you got that? Any questions? <laughs> Any reaction to that? All right. What? So now, let's see, a bridge version of the Old Testament. That's the Reader's Digest version. That's what we used to say in my day. Okay, so what I want you to do the rest of the time until 6 o'clock is to talk in your groups. And I think the way to do it is is to go around, just go around and, you know, we've got a good 20 minutes, so that's four to five minutes each, depending on how many are at your table. And just follow the questions on here. First, just give your name, rank, and serial number. You know, your name, your work, your family, a very abridged version, okay? Um, then tell us a little bit about your religious history or background. And, and that needs to be short enough to live within the time frame. But again, I mean, some of you are longtime members of Westminster. Some of you are visiting Westminster. Some of you are new to Westminster. Some of you are Jewish. Some of you are whatever. Just say whatever you are, okay? What is it that is leading you to sign up to this course other than you've already given up on the Redskins for the year? Okay? <laughs> Why are you taking it? And, and what's your biggest worry, fear, reservation about it? Okay? So what's good about it? What's your fear about it? Share that. Finish by 6 o'clock. And I'll, at 6 o'clock, I'll ring the bell and we'll have a closing prayer. Put your name tags back in and go home and I'll turn the recording off now, okay? So.